When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to cfact.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. It's hard to believe it's the end of October. This month flew by way too fast, but not lost on me is the importance of sharing news updates, interviews, and such with you all. And today we have an update on natural asset companies. You will hear me talk about this more on the podcast and elsewhere because this is extremely important. The Security and Exchange Commission just closed on a rule. I was mistaken in my town hall reporting with thinking the deadline is November 17th, but actually it was last Wednesday, unbeknownst to us, and the federal government cannot have 21-day comment periods. They're like legally obligated to have 45, 60-day periods. So this rule kind of went under the radar, and I have none other than return guest of the show, Margaret Beifeld, executive director of American Stewards of Liberty, who puts on the Stop 30 by 30 conference to break down this complicated convoluted but understandable topic when you break down the nitty-gritty of it. And we're going to do that for you all today on the program. So turning it over to Margaret Beifeld of American Stewards of Liberty, where we're going to talk about NACs. If you aren't aware of natural asset companies and a pending SEC rule about them, I hope this podcast today with return guest Margaret Beifeld is going to help you understand the issue more and why you should care about what's going on. So, Margaret, thank you for returning on the podcast to talk about this really timely, concerning issue. My pleasure, Gabriella, and thank you for giving us some attention. Very few people know about this, so I appreciate you um, exposing this. I hate that we have to be on the cutting edge, but it's always good to be the first to talk about this, to get this out there before everyone catches on. So you've been leading very tirelessly on this issue. And before we go into detail about um, natural asset companies, This does stem from 30 by 30, because guests will remember you came on to talk about 30 by 30, the initiative, how it relates to the United Nations and Biden's America, the beautiful plan and how that all works together. But you would say that this is largely stemming from 30 by 30, correct? Yes, I would. In fact, I think 30 by 30, the reason for 30 by 30 is for the creation of these natural asset companies. So when you really look at 30 by 30, as you and I have looked at a lot um, we, we understand that 30 by 30 is not about conservation. 30 by 30 is about controlling the resources and the assets. 
And I've come to, to be pretty, pretty, um, confident that it's about, about removing the private landowner from the land and putting be controlled by uh, the wealthy elite and governments. In other words, it's kind of flipping um, the philosophy that our nation was sound, was founded upon. We were founded upon a, a belief that, that the small landowner, the private individual, the citizen should have the ability to own the land. And that's how the land would be distributed so that the citizens could always control their government. So our founding fathers were very opposed to consolidated powers. Well, what the NAC, what 30 by 30 and the natural asset companies do is they really flip that and they are putting all of the assets, all of the power, all of the control of our land into consolidated powers between governments and the wealth of the elite. And it's going to be the small citizen that is getting run off the land and we will lose our power. We will go into detail as to whether or not, let's say, the SEC rule is rooted in any underpinning or understanding of markets in free markets a little later, but let's dive deep into what are natural asset companies. What are they? When did they first come around? I think you cited in some calls that we've done that they were first mentioned in 2021, but give us a whole overview, my listeners, including, of course, what are these entities and why are they being proposed and who is behind them? Okay. So they were first, they first became public in September of 2021. And really the reason they became public, this idea, this concept of NACs uh, in, in America, this is actually being done in other countries, but in America, that's when it first was proposed here. And it had to become public because in order to, in order to list these companies. So let me back up a little bit. The natural asset company is um, a proposal between the, in a group called the intrinsic exchange group and the New York stock exchange to create this new investment vehicle called natural asset companies. Now, the entity that funded and started the intrinsic exchange group is the Rockefeller Foundation and a number of other uh, very wealthy entities. And the supporting organizations are the international environmental groups like World Wildlife Fund. And what they all have in common is that they are the same entities that have been pushing the climate crisis narrative and pushing all those policies on us, as well as they're the same entities that are pushing the 30 by 30 agenda. So they have kind of a, a self-interest in um, in pushing people off their land and, and the creation of the NACs, the natural asset companies, is the way that really I think they have figured out to profit off of all of those protected lands. So this um, this investment company that they are, these companies, these NACs, that they're trying to uh, create so they can be listed here in the United States, to, to have these listed on the New York Stock Exchange, it required the... Um, the New York Stock Exchange adopting unique listing requirements because they are so unusual. They don't fit the normal um, investment model. So they were going to need special rules. So to apply for those, they had to apply to the Security Exchange Commission for this unique listing requirement. And to do that, they had to come public. So that's why in September of 2021 is when they made that application and when this first issue came up and that's when we picked it up. So since then, they have been waiting for the SEC to approve 
these unique listing requirements. And that's what we see. That's what we saw happen October 4th is the SEC issued a proposed rule to uh, approve the listing of these natural asset companies. Let's talk about intrinsic exchange group more before we explore the SEC rule in question, because this is what a natural asset company in their mind, if the SEC rule were to be approved, would look like. So they have three use cases, the IEG. They want to create natural areas, working areas, and hybrid areas. So could you give a brief summary as to those three use cases and what those would look like? Sure. So the natural asset company, first off, for it to be an investment vehicle, there have to be assets that are owned, controlled, or at least controlled, or that the asset that the company has the right to um, to list in the natural asset company. So the idea is they will identify an area of land and, and all of those assets. So usually it's going to be a big ecosystem area. And all of those natural assets in there, the natural asset company will acquire the rights to those assets. So they have explained on the IEG website that there are three different types of categories of land that would qualify. So they have the one category of land is the natural, which are basically the protected lands. So it would be our national parks and our federal lands, um, wilderness areas, national wildlife refuges, um, other protected lands in, in um primarily those that are owned by government, which I think is going to be shocking to a lot of people to realize that what uh, they are proposing to do is actually enroll our federal lands into a private investment vehicle for entities such as um, the wealthy elite or BlackRock and possibly even China to invest in and profit from. I think that's actually shocking, and I think there's a constitutional problem with that. The second area is the natural areas, the second type of category of land that can be listed are natural areas. So those are primarily going to be what they call working lands. So it'll be a private uh, piece of land that has a conservation easement on it, which means, you know, somebody, a land trust or the government actually owns the development rights to that land. And they are charged with making sure that that land is protected, even though the landowner may still be able to use it for agricultural purposes, may be able to use it for cattle grazing or, or crops. The, the conservation easement part of that is actually owned as a separate right by the land trust or the federal government. So you can look at the, like the Nature Conservancy's balance sheet and they have a line item. And I think their number is something like, I can't remember, but it's five, six billion that they own in conservation easements across the world. Well, that's a separate right. And so the, the land trusts can list that conservation easement as an asset to go into the, this natural asset company and then reap the investment, um, the investment return from that by listing it. And they can do that without the landowner's permission. So that's like, that's really a working land situation. The third is what they call a hybrid area. And that's going to be a combination of both your protected lands and your working lands. And included in these big circles, they're, they're looking at what they, how they describe it as something, uh, they name it a conservation area. So it's going to be a big area, a big ecosystem area that has a combination of those lands. There will be lands in there 
that are not participating in this conservation program, that the circle is going to be drawn around. And um, just the, the, the way that this all works, those people caught up in the middle of these boundaries are really going to be forced into joining and joining into these things, whether they want it or not. And, and as you're listing this, some people may be thinking this sounds very similar to the environmental, social and governance movement, which is what the Security and Exchange Commission has been pushing through and promulgating through what they want to institute as climate investing um, reporting or climate reporting. And this, um, as the rule states, kind of sounds very similar and would similarly um, advocate and and require some sort of reporting as well as part of their purview. But the rule specifically states as you have mentioned, um, NACs will be corporations that hold the rights to the ecological performance, i.e. the value of natural assets and productions of ecosystem services produced by natural or working areas such as national reserves or large-scale farmlands and have the authority to manage the areas for conservation, restoration, or sustainable management. These rights can be licensed like other rights, including, quote, run-of-the-land rights such as mineral rights, water rights, or air rights. And NACs are expected to license these rights from sovereign nations or private landowners, as you mentioned. And that's a really concerning point, especially as people start to sound the alarm on China buying land increasingly in the United States and using it for intelligence data collecting purposes or other nefarious reasons to undermine our country. Um, similar countries like them, like North Korea, Russia could similarly uh, maybe in, create a knack and, and work in concert with, you know, BlackRock or some other sort of financial asset management company and, and do this. And, and this is really concerned that the New York Stock Exchange really likes this so far. And they say it's in line with, you know, promoting ecological services or placing a value on nature like timber, wetlands, forests and pollinators um, and, and how it relates to ESG for, for those who are curious. And this is how I kind of view it and why it stuck out to me first before your presentation I saw on this and other discussions, discussions you've done is because it has the same overtones of fighting a so-called climate crisis and ushering in a transition to a more sustainable, just economy, very much like ESG. So is that how casual observers can see the this SEC rule being very similar to, like you said, uh, this climate crisis narrative, net zero, obfuscating property rights, et cetera? Yes, exactly. Spot on. Because the rule specifically says the reason that, that um, these natural asset companies are necessary as an investment vehicle is be- exactly for that reason, because they will help fight the climate crisis and um, create a sustainable environment. And so it's all for all those same reasons that we have ESG. Those are the same reasons behind the creation of these particular companies. I think one of the key issues is that's not the SEC's purpose. That's not what they were created to do was to um, uh, make a determination on an investment vehicle based on some moral principle. That's not what this is about. And that's not what they, sh- that's not what they're in the business of doing, but that's exactly what they're trying to do with the creation, the approval of the natural asset companies. So it's, it is very similar. I think the other element of this that is, is kind of the, the mind, mind boggling part of this is that when, as you read the, their definition of what a natural asset company is, they talk about uh, having the rights to ecosystem services. Well, what are those? Well, they explain that those ecosystem services are natural processes. So think about clean air, the air that we breathe. 
is one of the things that they are trying to monetize and put a value on as part of this investment. And um, eco- the, the the function, the natural functions of an ecosystem, which you know, I like to say, basically those things that God made, not the man made. And they're trying to quantify them. They're also things that really don't qualify as property. Property has a specific definition. And, and the most basic way to understand property or an asset is it's something you own that you can exclude somebody else from utilizing. So I may own a piece of land um, and you may want to use some of it, but I, I would have to give you permission to do that because I can exclude you from that. Well, the basic question is how how do they exclude people from using the air that they are putting a monetary value on and expecting an investment return from. So it's really, that's kind of the part of this that I think is really makes it look like a Ponzi scheme because um, they're trying to monetize something that's intangible that you can't see. You just know that's there. And, um, and that really they don't have a right to own and exclude humans, any human, from having access to. So it's, it really is a strange part of this, but that's the part of it where they, uh, they are able to increase the enormous value and, and investment benefit that they believe is going to come from these protected lands. This should put a rational thinking person who supports free markets in a very confounding position because as you're saying this, someone may say, well, we should put a value on natural assets. But the problem with doing that in this manner is the government is the determiner of those value. They could be hyperinflating it. They can be underinflating it. And as we know, when government comes in and determines a value of something or gives a priority to one industry over another, that artificially enhances that product or uh, services value. Um, and, and when it's contrasted with an actual market determiner, um, there is no actual market demand for these type of services or goods, especially when government props them up, or maybe the market value is far less. So we're seeing not a free market embrace here. We're seeing the government trying to pick winners and losers um, by elevating entities like this. Is is that what I should be understanding, what my listener should be understanding from this? We can surmise from this. It's not market-oriented. It's not market-oriented, no. They're trying to make it look like that, but it's not based on the, the fundamental supply and demand market. Um, it, it's, it is completely upside down. I mean, you you create a market, you, you create products from the utilization of the natural resources. And really, all wealth stems from the natural resources. And believe me, the people who are behind this agenda, they understand that, which is why they're trying to gain control of the natural resources that Americans currently now own might throw out that 60% of our nation is still owned by private individuals, the land in our nation, 40% is owned by government, but they're after that, that remaining 60%. But yes, it's exactly right. Because to give you kind of an illustration of how, how this compares to um, uh, our current markets, if you have a piece of land and it is covered in timber the product that you're going to harvest off of that is is going to be the trees that you will you will produce and make into construction materials which have a value on the market and when you when you harvest those trees then you're moving uh, a whole workforce into the community 
that is obviously creating jobs. They're the ones who are supporting the local tax base so that the counties can pay for the schools, the hospitals, um, the emergency services, all of those necessary uh, functions that they provide. It's that it's that industry that comes in that creates that tax base that gives the thriving local economy. And so that develops an economy, a supply and demand comedy uh, economy, as well as the product that's produced from that, the sale of the construction materials. So that that's how we do it today. That's our market system today. But what the what would happen under a natural asset um, company is first the priority, the purpose for the company is to protect the land. So if you're protecting the land, you aren't producing any real substantial um, products off of it. They do see, say some products can be produced as long as they are sustainable and replenishable, which means no mining, no oil and gas, or really nothing that they term because it's a, it's loosely termed and they can redefine it as they go. Uh, anything that they de- determine is not replenishable. So you take that same piece of land and instead of construction materials being the product off of it. Now the product is clean air, the carbon that comes off of it because it's protected and it's supposed to be cleaner air than maybe what you would get off of a piece of land that is actually in productive use. So, and then the other part of the ecosystem services is that the industry that they talk about that will be produced from it is ecotourism. And, um, the all of the the entities that go in to actually help protect the land. So like the land trusts who protect the land, they actually are going to be able to double dip in this in this system because first they can enroll the conservation easements as a part of the asset and get the the benefit, the financial benefit from doing so. And then they get to be paid to protect that land um, so that that it meets the requirements of a NAP. So it's really interesting. It's completely an upside down concept from our current markets, which is one of the reasons why I think it's been really difficult for um, for many Americans to to wrap their arms around this and figure out how is this even going to work? Because it really does not make sense. And I think the confusion is intentional because when you keep the public broadly confused, they can't call this into question or question, why should I challenge this or why should I you know, be concerned about this and, and natural assets. But to me, and I talked about this with you when we both testified in Kansas about um, private land ownership and and threats, you know, posed by foreign adversaries. To me, this seems, NAXIM as a concept, very similar to the efforts to promote what is called institutional farmland ownership, which would encourage the separation of farming operations from its capital base. So the farmers wouldn't be the overseers of their land. It would be corporations, much like NAX, coming in and dictating and leasing opportunities to farm or maintain a land to the farmers who should be the ones holding the rights to the land. Um, so it's, it seems to me the same divorce that we're trying to, that uh, we're seeing them do rather uh, in farming is now trying to extend to not only property rights and, and farming and ranching, but even to uh, public land access, which is a, which is why I want you to talk about more in detail about these hybrid areas that the IEG is talking about. There are two areas recently that you've made aware to me and to people we've worked we work with. Um, in particular, there's Rock Springs in Wyoming, and then there's also an area in Montana as well. Both are millions of acres. Could you break down um, both the Rock Springs project or the Rock Springs proposal and then the Montana one 
and how that would infringe on even, let's say, multiple use land or even recreational access to, because this does extend to public lands use as well, which is why I'm very concerned about natural asset companies. Yeah, absolutely. It does. So this is, you're exactly right. These are on point. We're actually seeing um, the the protected areas being created right now by our administrative agencies. The one that is occurring in Montana is it's being um, promulgated by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and it's called the uh, Missouri Headwaters Conservation Area. And, and what they did is the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has a national wildlife refuge in kind of the bottom east, the bottom corner, bottom center of uh, Montana. And it, it, so it's about 50,000 acres. And then there is a buffer zone around that that's about 150,000 acres, which Congress designated as an area that they could acquire more private property in, in order to expand the refuge. So that's their area. But what they have been doing behind the scenes uh, for many, many months is they have been very quietly working with the Nature Conservancy and the Teddy Roosevelt Conser- Conservation Partners, uh, two environmental organizations, and they have created a new conservation area that's kind of which this this National Wildlife Refuge is the anchor for. This new conservation area is 5.8 million acres there's half a million acres in there that are owned by the state. There's over 2 million acres inside this area that are owned by private landowners. And when they first announced this, they announced this after they had the plan done with their partnership with the environmental groups. They, they draw a circle on the map. They say, you guys are now within our conservation area. And so they've issued a rule but they're not even planning to do uh, an environmental impact statement where, you know, we can vet it. The public can comment on it. Uh, policymakers can get involved in it and um, really question the validity of this action. And so they are just doing that by administrative fiat. And um, and they have also said in that what they want to do, the purpose for this is they want to acquire 250000 of those private land acres and place them in the conservation easements. So, so this will then become this conservation area really becomes the exact definition, the exact model of when you go to the IEG website and you read about the hybrid areas, this, this Montana conservation area fits that definition perfectly. It's going to have a mixture of the protected lands and the working lands, the private lands with the conservation easements on it. There are going to be communities within these. There's little tiny communities all within this 5.8 million acres, whom I'll tell you, they do, they want no part of this. There's a real uproar in Montana. They do not want a part of this. And all of that's going to be conscripted into this conservation area. Now, Fish and Wildlife Service says this is all voluntary. Well, <laughs> these landowners didn't didn't get to weigh in to say whether or not they wanted a circle drawn on around them to be included into a part of this National Wildlife Refuge. So um, it's not voluntary. And the problem with these administrative actions is that once they put the circle on the map and that's approved, it's, um, you know, Roman from Epic TV. He's the one who I think described this most eloquently. He said it's like an anaconda. You know, an anaconda snake, once they circle it, they just start squeezing and squeezing and squeezing and putting in these sustainable requirements. Um, 
one thing to note about these conservation areas is that the mining, the restrictions on mining in that area are huge. And so there's a lot of minerals in this area. And, and I personally think that's one of the main reasons that they are trying to acquire this, this particular area is because of all the mining industry in there and the potential for critical minerals. Um, but that's what happens is once the circle goes up, it's like the anaconda snake that just starts squeezing people with new restrictions to where they finally either they succumb and they, they enroll in these programs or, um, they sell out, sell out and get out of there. But that's the problem with these, but that's the, the, the very specific model that is listed on the intrinsic exchange group's website under hybrid areas. And like the Montana proposal, there's also the Wyoming one, the Rock Springs proposal. And like Montana, it's a pretty big parcel of land that they want to designate under areas of critical environmental concern or ASICs. I always forget the acronym there, but I believe it's going to be 3.6 million acres. And they have been fighting it actually, um, I think organizing a bit, and they've extended a public comment deadline until January 17th. But like the Montana one, I think this particular parcel will have a lot of critical mineral areas. I've even seen from some people I know on the ground that um, if this were to be erected and enacted, that uh, a lot of people, even public land users, would lose the ability to do predator management, uh, work on the land, recreate on the land. So it invites a lot of restrictions, very similar to kind of like conservation leases to me. Like this, it's screaming so much to me, like the BLM's proposal. Are there a lot of similarities to the BLM conservation lease proposal, you think, between this and NACs and, and uh, hybrid areas maybe? Yes, absolutely. And I think, and you're exactly right. And this is pretty typical of the Bureau of Land Management. Whenever they come out with a, a new proposed rulemaking, like the conservation rule that they came out with earlier this year, um, there, the agencies actually start enacting it before it's actually in place. We saw this in the Obama administration too, when they proposed a new uh, BLM planning rule like they're doing now. So, um, what they're doing with this resource management plan. So to back up the, the, the Wyoming area is an area of multiple use lands that the BLM is charged with managing this rocks, rock um, springs area. And so they are to redo their management plan every 15 years. Well, of course it's a, it's a bureaucracy. So they never get that done on time. Um, they're way behind on creating a new plan. But as they create the new plan, they are essentially wiping out all of the productive uses by just basically writing them out of the plan, not authorizing those uses. So that's why you see they do it through things like the ACECs, the areas of critical environmental concern that you mentioned. And they will designate a huge swath of, of this area and decide, you know, this is this is really uniquely important. Um, and so we should give it this special status and therefore it gets a special pr- protection. And in an ACEC, you can't build any new roads. There's no oil and gas development. And what we see happen in the other ACECs that are uh, designated is it's a slowly but surely they restrict all the uses, including recreation, to where mm-hmm. it's really not even accessible anymore. So they're trying to put in a number of these with the Rock Springs plan and they're eliminating uses in a number of other ways, just administratively. And, um, and so the, the one good thing that, that is different about the Wyoming situation versus the um, Montana conservation area is when the agency does a resource management plan revision, they have to go through the NEPA process, the national environmental policy act. 
process. That's not a question. And that means that it gives, um, it gives the public a number of opportunities to challenge this and really weigh in and, and expose the problems with this plan. So it doesn't mean that it's an easy fight. It just means that it's a different fight that people can get involved in. And, and the BLM has a higher bar that they have to prove. Um, in order to justify this this new plan that they're trying to come out with. But exactly, you know, what they're doing with the BLM conservation rule, as you well know, is they're trying to elevate conservation over the multiple uses of our federal lands and prioritize conservation. And once and, and in, in that process, how they're going to authorize that is through by giving out conservation leases. And under the conservation leases, there cannot be any activities going on that conflict with the conservation purpose of that lease, which basically means there's not going to be any activity on those lands. So I, th- I find it really interesting with that rule, how the Bureau of Land Management on these multiple use lands, they are charged with managing the lands so that all of the uses can occur simultaneously on that piece of land. So you could have a piece of land where there's livestock grazing on it, there's mineral development on it. There's oil and gas on it. There's recreation on it, uh, possibly timber production on it. And all of these uses should be able to occur on these lands at the same time. And BLM's role is to manage those and manage those um, effectively so that all those uses can continue so that the local economies can be supported. And we have, you know, schools, hospitals, emergency services, um, to support really the recreational communities that comes in and like and visits these areas and takes advantage of these lands in that way. So, um, but what 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 the, the mere fact that the BLM is coming out and saying these lands are in such bad shape that we now need to put them in conservation status and and eliminate the multiple uses is admitting they have done a terrible job managing these lands. And instead of giving them more power of the, over the lands, this power should be taken away from them. There's a lot of question to be had there about giving government more authority, especially when they poorly manage lands and they kick people off public access. And then they also do not know how to cooperate and build trust with private stakeholders as well. And I've told you this many times. I think they're misusing conservation when they're really meaning preservation and keeping people off for all purposes because multiple use and conservation go hand in hand. That's something I hope listeners take away from this because they're purposely saying this is conservation to gaslight us and say you have to agree because we're calling it conservation. And then when you dig more into it, you find out it's not because they first start eroding different activities and access related to them. And then your favorite activity all of a sudden becomes affected as well because that's the chain that they follow. Um, You can't trust them to to protect uh, hunting and fishing um, when they're going after other activities or more extractive activities because there's no guarantees with even recreation activities when when these other consumptive uses, so so to speak, go out the window as well. So you can't trust government to protect recreation. That's why why we think these directives – are dangerous altogether, and they undermine true conservation. Margaret, if people are interested in commenting on the SEC rule, learning more about natural asset companies, possibly weighing in on both the conservation hybrid areas in Montana and Wyoming, where would you like to send them to, and how would you encourage them to get involved? Well, they can go to our website, which is americanstewards.us, and we have articles up, and uh, particularly on the SEC rule, there's one up on our homepage, which gives the link 
to the SEC rule where you can actually comment and put comments in. And I'd encourage everybody to do that. I think one of the reasons on the SEC rule is that they're trying to do this uh, very quietly. When they issued the rule, there was no press release, nothing publicly mentioned on this. And it's it's really just been, you know, us, we've, we've picked it up. Gabriella, you've written on it, thankfully. And, um, and that's really the, really the attention it's received so far. So it tells me they really want to get this done quietly. And so making a comment on the SEC rule is good because it, it shows SEC people are aware of this and they oppose this. And, um, you know, we also have an article up there on the, the Montana headwaters, um, issue. That's, that's, you can also find information on that. So, um, that's the, that's where I would go is, is check out our website. And, um, and if you sign up for our newsletter, then, then we'll keep you, we'll be sending our bi-weekly reports, which updates on these key issues that are, and we're tracking 30 by 30, of course, and natural assets and all the issues impacting property rights and the climate crisis narrative. You and your organization do a phenomenal job on these kind of opaque, but very important issues that don't get a lot of sunlight. So, you know that I always convey my gratitude to you for informing me and now informing listeners here about this because this will affect us one way or another. Even if you don't live close to these lands, they're going to find ways to do this. I, I think I was even telling you, Margaret, that they're trying to propose conservation areas and developments in Florida uh, where there's not yeah. even millions of acres. So I've had some friends signal the alarm there too. So they're looking to to implement this in even urbanized areas too. So this is coming to your backyard uh, one way or another. And we think it's incredible. We think it's critically important to address NACs, this SEC rule, and how they are really sullying and dirtying conservation efforts. Margaret, thank you again for joining, and I will be sure to include all the links you alluded to in the show notes. Everyone, please heed Margaret's call to actions if you want to weigh in on comments uh, for all these different plans, the, the federal rule, the two management plans, and get educated. Margaret's group has a great repository of information on their website, as she said. And thank you again, Margaret. Always good to have you on. Oh, thank you, Gabriella. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. If you enjoyed what you heard today, go leave us some reviews on Apple and Spotify or wherever podcasts are played. Your feedback will help us reach more people. And I love to know what is on your mind after each episode. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat or a guest announcement because that is our way of updating all of you listeners. And we have just hit a thousand followers on Instagram for the podcast account. Thank you very much. And if you have any guest suggestions or topics you want to hear on the show, I'm all ears. I would love to hear your feedback there. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.